Al, hi, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Yeah. It's, uh, it's good to meet. Obviously, we chatted a little bit via um, email to get this, uh, to get this set up. So uh, where, where are you uh, calling in from? So I'm in North London. Uh, and yeah, it's, uh, it's sunny here, I assume the same way you are. It is. It is. I'm sort of down towards the south coast. And, and yeah, as I look out, there's some nice, nice blue sky and, and sort of we're in indoors. Um, so we better make yeah. the most of that, really. So congratulations <laughs> on your um, on your new book. Thank you. Thank you. Um, what got you writing? That's, I don't know. It, it, it was something that I'd, I wouldn't say I'd always wanted to do. But I think work out in life over time, probably later than most in my case, what it is that you're good at. And I think that I'd always enjoyed writing, but I'd never really written anything. But, you know, you spend a career in the NHS as I did. I'm in my 50s now. And you know, I spent time trying to be on committees. And I don't think it really suited me. And the managerial structure, I felt I ought to want to do but really the things I love, aside from seeing patients, was, the, was teaching and writing. And, you know, that phrase from Polonius in, in uh, Hamlet, when he uh, says, to thy, this above all, to thine own self be true. And, I, and I, it gradually dawned on me that what I should be doing is this. So it, it was about, three or, about four years ago. I decided that I wanted to write a book. Obviously, knew absolutely nothing about it. <laughs> so it was, um, you know, I just thought I'd sort of write a book and someone would publish it. I didn't realise quite what what you need to go through. But there you are. That's that's a long-winded answer to a very short question. <laughs> so you, I mean, look, you 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 say you haven't written, but of course, as a, as a doctor, you would have written loads and loads of things that probably no one else can read. I don't know what your writing's like. But yes. It's, it's, in, it's indecipherable. Yeah, I've written, I've written some academic papers, not, not, not a huge amount of them, but I've written some, and they're all written in that dry, anonymized, third-person kind of language where, you know, I, once went, I went to the library to look, something up a few years ago and it meant me going back to papers that were written in the 1920s and 30s and up to the 50s and they were really lively full of personality and at some point they just lost that um and you know uh, so i've written that but the other thing i've written over the years is my clinic letters and when you said that no one ever reads i was wondering if you meant them as well because uh, <laughs> well if they're tight they'd be all right <laughs> I assume people just go straight to the conclusion of clinic letters, to the summary, to the last paragraph, to see the red bit. But bizarrely, I've always enjoyed writing clinic letters, and I spend much longer than I should trying to make them readable, and if not interesting, at least elegant in some way. And and I was thinking, in as much as I've really written anything over the past twenty odd years, it's probably just the letters I write from seeing patients. Yeah. Well, of course, you know, a number of people have published their letters. Oh, is that right? <laughs> letters to Corinthian? Yeah, <laughs> I've not read them. <laughs> perhaps, I should, perhaps I should do. <laughs> but yeah, you know, great, great correspondence. Um, do, you, do you, I mean, the clinic letters, the sort of the thing that has to come at the end of, of seeing, you know, many people. Um, you're trying to remember who you've seen and, and what you've done. So to take your time, I think, is something special. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I do. I do take my time and I do think quite a lot about the letters that I write and trying to do justice to the person that I've seen. And, and I suppose, you know, we all do it in a way, but, you know, they, I suppose it's the purpose of our professional lives, particularly well, certainly something like psychiatry, where there's not uh, the technology, the operation, whatever else needs to be got right, but it does need to be based on a proper understanding of the person that you're seeing. And and so, I do think I do think it's something that I take time over. Mm. And, you know, 
I suppose the, the odd thing about writing as well is that I, I so you discover quite a lot about yourself during that process as well. Certainly, certainly write, writing a book, I, I learned more about myself than I realised that I would do. Um, and that's, that's been an interesting experience too, I have to say. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you've got some really important things that you say in the, in the book, but just, just going back again to the, to the letter writing, because that's it, isn't it? If you're communicating to another professional about this, this particular person and their, their troubles, then you're, you're showing huge respect and, and, and value to, to both of those people, both the patient and the clinician or the therapist at, at the other end. Um, yeah. that's what it strikes me as I think I think that's right I, I always want the person reading the letter to be able to imagine what it's like being in the room with that patient without having met them and I always find that a hard thing to do which is why I suppose I spent quite a long time because there's you have to I suppose make that line between being honest in your communication, but not brutally honest sometimes. You need, you know, and, and finding that line, and I sort of will occasionally take out a word, put it back in and faff around for ages, because I, I would have to say something that, you know, the patient would be offended by or think was a bit rude or overly uh, critical or personal, but it's all personal anyway. And finding that line is something that, um, and, and maybe that's just part of my nature anyway, slightly, I don't know, fastidious might be the wrong word, but I do worry about, about that kind of thing. I worry probably more than I should do about most things. That's certainly <laughs> one of those things. <laughs> so do, do you kind of come through a lens then whereby you're, you're writing the letter almost as if the patient is there reading it and and you would want them to say yeah that, no that that is a character description that's capturing me and my experiences yeah definitely definitely if, if a patient sometimes i'll sum up to a patient at the end what what i think or and i'll put it in a letter and it's a great feeling when they say yes you you know you just got me just feels it feels right and, and i get a great sense of satisfaction from that uh, or, you know, it's clinically helpful as well. But but it's it's nice. You know, I think people I think part of delivering good care, and it's not just psychiatry, but in anything, is that someone feels that their problem's been understood. And, you know, very, very often in, in consultations, you must have had it yourself. The, you know, what, what people value, as well as sort of clinical competence, is, is the fact that someone listened to what they said and understood what it was they were trying to communicate and what it was they worried it could be and all the all the things that you can't easily measure mm. but the, I think you know patients can spot a good and a bad clinician very quickly and I think it's those non-verbal things about maybe some of verbal but about who's interested in them and 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 I don't and I think you communicate that in all sorts of ways, but patients are very sensitive in picking it up as perhaps you and I are when we're on the other side of the, of the table, so to speak. Yeah, well, that, that struck me in your book. Obviously, there's lots of stories um, to illustrate the points that, that you're making. And, and, and as much as you can feel it through, through words, it's it very much, I may actually get the sense that you're in the room with, the, with that person. Is, is that something that, that's sort of natural to you or have you had to learn that? I, I, you know, you never want to say you're natural at anything, but it is, is the thing that I would say comes naturally to me is, is not, I don't, I don't know about the writing. The writing was just, you know, I'd never, going back to what we talked about, I've never really written anything. So I never really knew what it was going to sound like to someone that had never read, uh, you know, to someone reading a book because I read books that are non-fiction and I take a view about whether I like the author whether I think I'd like to meet them and all of that and sometimes you know I, I was thinking I wonder what I sound like I couldn't tell I couldn't 
you know, I, and I did worry a bit about whether people were going to read the book and say, oh, God, you know, he's he sounds awful. I'd hate to, you know, I'd hate to be a patient of his. Or, and, and so from time to time, every couple of months, this anxiety would come and, and overwhelm me for, for a couple of hours. But in terms of actually seeing a patient, I, I think it comes down to uh, th th that I very rarely, if ever, meet someone who I don't like. Uh, and I uh, and I think patients pick up on that. So, yes, I think I, I you know, it comes naturally in part because I just like the I'm interested in what they've got to say. And I like speaking to people and I like speaking to the patients. And so and, and so I think that's that's half of it for me. Yeah. You, I mean, you make it sound very easy, which which, of course, is is a great attribute. You know, if you think about great football players, great musicians, they, they make it look and sound very easy. Mm. But of course, that comes through years of, of being on a route of, of mastery. Yeah. Um, well, I, I yeah. Sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, I mean, that so that that's really how how it how it comes across. Well, it's it's lovely to hear, and uh, it's very kind of you to say. I mean, I, I it's one of those things, you know. I, the, the, I talk at one point, not in this context, but about the Dunning Kruger effect, which is that the well, it, it goes sort of both ways. I mean, one way is the less experienced you are at something, the easier you think it's going to be, and therefore the less you value the skill. So I might say, you know, flying a plane, it's just kind of, it's all autopilot and you just kind of point it in the direction you want it to go and press a button. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and it's very easy to, to think there's probably not a great deal to it until someone makes you do it and then you realise how completely unequipped you are. <laughs> and I, but, but it goes the other way as well, which is that when you are experienced and competent at something, you tend to undervalue that skill and think it's probably quite easy and anyone could do it um and and i i suppose i'm a bit guilty of that but over the years i have i think developed an expertise and and, and as i've done that i've begun to you know think well it's, it, it's probably not that difficult and just from time to time i'll see well perhaps more regularly from time to time but i teach trainees and i'll see them do it in a way that's not sort of flowing or elegant and I realized yes okay I can see there is you know you do need to know what you're doing yeah yeah the the you know the art of conversation it's not not everyone finds that easy to do um mm. so we shouldn't expect that every doctor or every clinician whatever it is uh, is is a superb communicator um mm. And that, that poses a bit of a problem, really, because communication is so at the heart of, of what we do, it, in my opinion. Um, mm. What would you say to well, that? I think, it, I, I think that you've identified, you know, a, a really interesting area, which is that, you know, and, and part of the thesis of, of the book is that um, medicine's become very technocratic. And we've tended to think that our expertise in imaging and diagnostic ability is the most important thing. And we forget sometimes that, that it is the communication. It's about understanding the meaning and the context of symptoms as much as the cause of the symptoms themselves that, that, that really matter. So, you know, I talk about the experience of one one patient who's sure that they have a brain tumour, but no one's really asked them why, uh, you know, if that's what they think, they, the patient just presented with headaches. And, and so they feel a little bit sort of foolish, um, not, but, but they don't really want to say that, 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 they, that that's what they think. But ultimately it doesn't go away until someone asks the question, what is it you're worried about? No, they've had a dozen scans by then and lots of investigations and I think even a lumbar puncture at that stage, but there's plenty's gone on. And the, the technical delivery of care has been first rate, not a stone unturned, but the patient is very dissatisfied with the, with the consultation. And, and I think really because it was down to a lack of communication, which, which 
which, you know, it's not, I suppose, that hard, but in a busy clinic, it's, you know, everyone's a little bit pushed. And, and I think you end up, or it's easy to end up, just sort of going directly to the point with that, without sort of understanding the context of what's worrying the patient. And I think I quote one study uh, towards the end of the book, which is, is a figure, I've asked people this question who don't know the study, how long is it, do you think, when a patient sits down in the clinic room and you ask them why they've come, how long is it before a doctor will interrupt them on average? Mm. And, you know, people think maybe a minute, maybe a minute and a half. And, uh, you know, the answer I think was 11 seconds, as I recall. I've forgotten the reference now, but it's, it's there. And, and I think that's it's saying something about the doctor setting the agenda and whether that's good communication or even good medicine is, is a whole question. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're right. It was, Well, I've read that in your book very recently. So and mm. I think I think physio might even be worse than that. I can't remember what the, um, the number is. Um, and why, why do you think it is that 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 position is taken so quickly? And, and I wouldn't wholly blame the doctor because there's also expectations mm. from a lot of patients that, you know, yeah. the pedestal thing and all that sort of yeah, I, I mean, I think it's it's a really complex sort of mixture of reasons why we just get into it straight away, so to speak. I certainly think time is one of them. You know, in, in a busy clinic, you want to go where the money is and ask directly about the symptom and elucidate the cause. I think the second is a conceptualization of medicine which I, I heard one of your other contributors, I think, on, on one of your previous podcasts talk about, which is the conceptualization of the body as a machine. That if, if, if something has, you know, if you've got a symptom, then a bit of the machine somewhere must have gone wrong and you just need to find with laser-like accuracy where it is. I think the third issue is expectations. I think the patients and doctors feed off each other in that respect the, the patient thinks that the doctor's probably only interested in the physical bit very often and the doctor thinks that the patient wants a physical explanation for their problem mm. which i get i think probably gets through to the fourth thing in my view which is the culture of medicine which is something we don't think about that much but medicine goes through sort of cultural shifts every couple of generations, the, the things that we focused on or thought were important a couple of generations ago, we now sort of laugh up our sleeves at. And, and, and I think we're just in a culture now of a very technocratic delivery of healthcare. And that's just, you know, part of that process. So all of that, all of those four reasons sort of condensed into a 10 minute consultation with your GP. And obviously that's going to be the result. And I, I would just sort of take it a step further. I mean, something else that I, I, I suppose perhaps the fifth thing is the time that doctors, uh, you know, that doctors have to, you know, maybe avoid opening up a can of worms. You know, people often do prefer a simple or simplistic medical explanation in favor of a complex psychological one um, or a psychological contributor or you know some something along those lines and so I think there's that mix as to why medicine is being practiced in the way that it is at the moment yeah yeah so it sounds like from what you're saying there and, and what you're saying in the book that and tell me if I'm getting this wrong that you know doctors by and large you know they're they're well intended they really they're there they want to help but the system has kind of shaped them into working in this particular way so it's not so much an issue with the people but more the system and the machine that they're kind of put through to become that modern doctor yeah i mean i i think that i'm glad you brought that up um because after I'd 
finished my answer, I did realise what that might have sounded like, because I, I've very rarely, if ever, met a badly intentioned doctor that didn't want to do the best for their patient or therapist or, you know, or anyone else. I mean, it's people are well intentioned. They've gone into medicine usually out of a sort of drive to do some good. Um, but the but we are in a system of, I think, risk uh, adversity. You know, no one wants to be the one that misses a diagnosis. So, you know, we'll often over-investigate, not, not because the doctor's a bad doctor, but they think, well, you know, what's the downside for me? If, if they miss a diagnosis, that's, that's sort of something that doctors have nightmares about, an important diagnosis. Yeah. But doing an unnecessary investigation, that tends not to attract the same sort of criticism. People might say it's a bit overcautious or it's a bit, you know, it's too, maybe they didn't have to do all of that. But most of the time, most people won't look, look upon them too badly. And, you know, but I don't think investigations, unnecessary ones, are all that benign. And forever, you, you know, you get a little blob showing up on the scan or, you know, in, in your case, in physiotherapy, presumably something wrong with a lumbar spine. You know, there's always something a bit wrong. <laughs> you know, if, you, if you take an x-ray of someone's spine, I assume. Um, and so, so you start to generate a, a lot of problems that sort of flows from there. So I, so I think that's the first area. And, and the second is, is that Again, this sort of cultural thing that, that I talk about in the book, which, you know, and I, this is an idea I developed from, you know, and again, it's referenced in, in the book, but, but which, which is that, you know, people don't like to have symptoms with no clear-cut physical explanation for them, or at least a lot of people don't. It's, you know, people read into that that somehow... Un doctors think they're undeserving or their family and friends want to know what the diagnosis was and and so I think that doctors fulfill a function if you like by investigating people in legitimizing a disease process now I think you can be suffering without a disease process but you know in in societal terms if you want to if you need to take some days off work or whatever people want to know what's the diagnosis what is it that you've got and vague hard to define symptoms you know they might be very disabling but if you if you can put a name to it or show you want to scan where it's gone wrong it can be very it can be you know be very difficult for people so i i think it's just part of the culture that we're in you've got insomnia or whatever and the doctor can't really find out but you're it's ruining your life you know it's going to be very hard for you to make a case to anyone unless so anyway so i think there's i think there's we've just got ourselves into this situation and you know who knows who knows how we'll sort of tiptoe out of it but it's can't see it happening anytime soon yeah i mean there's positive noises and of course you know a book such as yours is is really contributing to to that and hopefully helping people to zoom out a bit and and take a broader mm. perspective but but as you say you know you or you're intimating there you you can't see suffering you can't see pain you can't see depression you can't see anxiety mm. um so there's nothing that someone can take to someone else and say look and somehow, as you said, we've got in this social situation whereby people want the hard proof that there's something wrong with you. And if you can't provide that, then there's some other maybe not real explanation. Um, but of course, as we know, so many people are suffering lots of different things that you can't see. Yeah, I, I think I think that's right. And I, I think it ever was thus. And, and I think it's presented a problem for medicine which we've never quite resolved so, you know so you know just to give it some context and and sort of elsewhere in the book i i talk about a a uh in primary care in the u.s there was one study where for common symptoms 
like chest pain and dizziness and that sort of thing. The doctor only found a physical cause in about 16% of cases, I think it was. Just, you know, for, for common problems for people to go to the doctor with, that's, you know, most of them aren't medicine the way that we think of it. But of course, it is medicine. This is what medicine is. It's just not how it's taught. You know, I, 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 I mean, I was taught in a very old fashioned way. It was, uh, it was only uh, in my fourth year at medical school that I actually saw a patient remember not even knowing what tachycardia meant on my first day on the ward and <laughs> getting a bit of a, um, but I, I, and I so I think that you know there, there is that problem and in secondary care of course lots of studies well I say lots but at least several studies that I can think of have shown that it's medically unexplained symptoms are really common in neurology and gynecology and uh, gastroenterology, rheumatology. There's lots of specialties where no medical diagnosis is, you know, these people have made it from the GP to the secondary care where that's one of the more common, if not the most common diagnosis of all. So I think there really is an issue and it's, you know, it's, it's funny to think that this is the case when we spend so little time really at medical school talking about it. Yeah. And I don't recall a single lecture where we really talked about medically unexplained symptoms or about the contribution of psychological health or mental illness to physical presentations. Yeah. Just, you know, it, it was a very sharp dividing line between what you did on the psychiatry wards and what happened on the medical wards. And you know, that's as you say, it's changing a bit. It's certainly improving, and there's certain Twitter groups now that are very helpful in in sort of owning this. But but I I still think that we've got a very long way to go. Yeah, yeah. So you know those those people, and and again, you know, you describe a number of cases in the book who have gone through the various hoops, and then sort of just end up at your door, um, mm. and. Is, is that largely still the case? Is that sort of how it works? For some people, it is not. I mean, it still happens. And it's it's not the majority by a long way. But but there is a significant minority of patients in my clinic that, that will come with a symptom. And, you know, something that could be could be representing anything, let's say dizziness. And we know dizziness could be a heart, you know, not pumping or having arrhythmias, or it could be something a bit neurological, or it could be ENT, or it could be, and, and you see any, you know, people getting their in their ear prodded and probed and tested and goodness knows what else they do. And then complicated cardiology tests and then neurology tests. And then by the time you do enough tests, you'll have found something wrong. And, yeah. and then there's a whole sort of rabbit hole that people uh, tumble into to try and work out what that wrong thing was and what relevance it has to the symptoms. And by then, if you're a normal patient, surely you'd be thinking, if the doctors weren't so worried about this, why do they keep investigating? Yeah. So by the time they are asked to see a psychiatrist, a lot of them say, and I just felt fobbed off. You know, they don't see it as something positive that can contribute to their healthcare, although they might've done eight months before when all this began. But by the time they see me, very often, if not quite under sufferance, then, then the feeling that they've just been abandoned by the medical system and in some way are being blamed the symptoms that they've got well it must you know they're saying it's all in my head now yeah you know they've got bored of me they've run out investigations to do and and so and so a lot of you know a lot of the work in the first couple of sessions is trying to come to some shared understanding of what the problem is and you know and a conceptualization of health and illness that's uh, uh, some variance with, with what they've had before. And by the way, and again, coming back to a point you raised before, the doctors doing them investigations in nearly all cases have been 
superb, top-rate doctors who you would really want to see if, if you had a problem. But I, I think, again, comes into the culture, which is, you know, how, how much we feel we have to investigate everything and how much we can take a view. Mm. So, yeah, again, a very long-winded answer. <laughs> it's, it sounds like at some point, there's a switch for that patient, isn't there? They, they're going from, oh yeah, some hope, maybe they're gonna find something, I'm gonna go and see this consultant or that and have that test. At some point, there's some sort of switch that goes from that to the hope evaporates. Mm. It's often, you know, you, it's often the patients will say to me, you know, the doctor said to me, good news, there's, there's, there's nothing wrong with you, or we couldn't find anything. And the number of times a patient has wished to me that they'd have broken their arm or they'd got, you know, some significant cardiac defect or, God forbid, something worse, if only to prove that there really was something, that their suffering is real and that they... And so, yeah, it's, it's really that, that moment for, for people of realizing you know that they've they're not going to get that clarity of diagnosis that the real world is swimming in shades of gray that mm. you know the sort of the, the what, what we all want and i make this point early in the book is is um you know modern medicine i think a lot of it has been built on the sort of the construct of an infectious disease where you have a pathogen, a bacteria or something, a virus, fungus, protozoa, whatever. And it causes a predictable disease process which the doctor can diagnose and gives a crisp treatment for bacteria, it will be an antibiotic. And the problem is resolved and it's perfect. And we want everything in medicine to look like that. Mm. But very few things in medicine look like that. And I think a lot of people are uncomfortable swimming in shades of gray, yeah. in the complexity and the messy reality of life. You know, I, I do things not because they're theoretically elegant, but because I think they might work. And, you know, and a lot of people just don't like the sort of messiness of real, of, a people's real life symptoms they want you know it'd be nice to i think fix a broken bone and the problem's gone but yeah. for a lot of problems we see it just doesn't go like that yeah i i guess then it's people's and a lot of people's need for some kind of certainty they've been led to believe deeply their worldview if you like that there are certainties in life and medicine and healthcare is one of those. So when I go and see this doctor, they're going to definitely tell me what's wrong and definitely be able to tell me what we're going to need to do. That gives me the certainty. Great. And I've been listened to. You know, that, that's a given. Yeah. And of course, what we're saying here is that there's very little certainty. That's the reality of life. Very little certainty really being exemplified by something like medically unexplained symptoms. Yeah, I think that's that's right. Look, in some areas of medicine, there is certainty. You, you can find it. It's clear. Everyone knows what to do. You can sit under a microscope. And that's great. You know, medicine is really good at those sort of things. I'm not in any of this book knocking medicine. I think it's I think the advances you've made are outstanding. And, you know, and I, I read about it in the medical journals and I watch it and I have enormous respect for the people that do it. But there is a part of medicine or a part of healthcare that just doesn't fit that model. And, and I think it, it comes down to the, the, maybe an illusion that medicine is just a science. And it's not. I think that's what you were saying in your question. And I, the understanding of medicine as a science, you need to understand the anatomy and the physiology and the biochemistry and the pathology of the body and all of those things of course but the practice of medicine is an art and I never really got that and it took me you know it took me a long time 
to sort of get to that understanding. And I think that taps back to what you were saying before about clinical interviews and, and all of that, just an ability to sort of factor in all of the, all of those other areas uh, and, and not just go again for these sort of simplistic one-dimensional kind of view of the world. Yeah. Yeah. And, and kind of turning our attention perhaps a little bit more to, to psychiatry, you know, your, your specialism, it, it strikes me that, that you really need, I'm not sure more than in other disciplines, but, but, you know, you need to be aware of the science of all the other areas of medicine because people can come from any of those and you mm. some understanding of that before you then apply your art of let's call it communication yeah. of presence of being yeah I, I mean absolutely right and, and there have been I think what what patients perhaps one of the things that they fear when they're referred to me in in uh, psychiatry with when the liaison psychiatry with people I don't know if people listening to this will, will, will know, but liaison psychiatry on the interface between medicine and psychiatry. So it's medicine as practiced in the general hospital. Um, uh, psychiatry is practiced in the general hospital, rather. And, and I think what people fear is that if they're referred to me, they'll get sort of lost to the medical system. And, and there's no, it's a one-way ticket is what they worry most about. But some, you know, I, I will from time to time say to the referrer no this this does not feel right as a psychiatric issue i'm pretty sure that this is medical still and i would recommend you continue to investigate as as you know and from time to time it has turned up sort of a medical problem so i think as long as you work in tandem as long as you you're right you need to know what you're doing and you need to know the the science of it to you know to be able to make a judgment and and you know i think but even even in those cases where it's not about the science but it's about understanding the these sort of clinical options out there you know should someone give a kidney away to a stranger to a relative and and they again require i would say mature judgment as much as they do an understanding of the science, which is what happens if you don't let them, you know, should you be thinking about the recipient or just the potential donor who's in your clinic? And how do you make sense of that? You know, what, what part of medical school teaches you mm. these judgments? And I, I think that's that's quite hard. Um, and that that's took a lot of sort of thought and experience to get to. Yeah. And, and you you talk about that quite a lot in the book. And I found that fascinating because you're right. You know, that's that's not classic doctor work, is it? To, to mm. be making, as you use the word judgment and, and it's it's not legal, is it? In that sense. But it's but you're sitting back and having to look and then and then offer your opinion, your human opinion about some other actions, severe actions mm. of other humans. I mean, that's that's quite something. It, it is, and it has consequences in the real world, both, you know, for getting it wrong in either direction. And, um, and, and it, is, it is difficult. Um, and I find those, those ones that require subjective judgment, even there may be a framework. I suppose all of medicine, you need to make judgments. I suppose surgeons need to make judgments about when to operate, you know, under conditions of uncertainty. I think in the end, we all, in clinical medicine have to practice that. I find, you know, that those, when uh, there, was, there was one case that I uh, saw anonymized and put to a conference, which is, you know, if you knew that someone with a history of relapsing bipolar disorder wanted to give a kidney to a relative, knowing that that could lead to a relapse of their symptoms, and the relapse could lead to hospital admission, possibly even admission under section. To, you know, what are your obligations? You know, what should you try and save the patient from themselves? Do you say no? They've got capacity and autonomy, and they should make that decision. Do people make decisions that, you know, people would? What have what have my uh, 
well, two of my colleagues at, at, um, did a study on what risk patients were prepared to take to give a kidney to a loved one. And, uh, and I think the most common answer was a one in two chance of death. No, no doctor would subject a patient to that kind of risk. But, you know, patients may take a different view in, in certain situations. So these judgments are really hard and, um, and you have to factor in a lot of things. And of course, you know, so yeah. And, and so I think they, those, those ones are difficult. Mm. And, and in the end, we started to take them as a team, you know, cause I, I always think I don't have a monopoly on good judgment, but I'm, you know, I know about the mental health problems and potential risks, but overall, whether this is something they should or shouldn't do, that was that was something that we started to discuss as a team. Yeah, yeah. On a, on a kind of a practical note for, for you, how how do you remain objective when fundamentally with, I mean, you're very human in your approach. How, how do you keep that objectivity? Bearing in mind, mm. you said, you know, you like talking to people, you like people, um, you like spending time with patients, and I can really relate to that. And inevitably, there's you know a friendliness can occur, but yet you're professional. Yeah, how, how do you do that? Well, I, I mean, I, I suppose I just it, it's the way I've been taught, and and you know, my I, when I was in training, my uh, consultants always wanted me this was in general medicine, to wear a white coat to keep a bit of a barrier between you and the patient. And also, I, I, so I, I think to some extent it's of my generation. But I, I, I would say that sometimes I find it hard. And I find it hard when a patient is taking a decision that I think will hasten their death and then make it with capacity, understanding what they're doing and making a judgment that, you know, that, that the life they're living is, um, you know, it is, is too hard for them to carry on. And, you know, and I talk in my book about someone that wants to be helped to die and I, or, or capacity to make a treatment decision that I think is going to hasten their death. And I, I suffer a little bit with it. And those are the ones that I take home with me. And I, I don't take much home with me, I, you know, but, but those ones I do when, because it matters to me and it's, but it's not my, you know, my business is to, for example, make sure someone's making a capacitive decision, but I also kind of care what decision they make, but it's not, that's not my business. Yeah. And, 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 but I do, I do think about those quite a lot yeah. um, after the fact. And, and so keeping myself out of those consultations can be difficult, mm. if you sort of mean. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, with, with someone more junior coming through, what do you encourage them to do? How do you encourage them to approach that? It's an interesting one that um, I think a lot of the, I think, I'm not sure if it's a spoken thing. Juniors will observe how you do things and they'll have their own character and personalities that they bring to the consultation. And they, I think, evolve into the clinician that they're going to become that's consistent with their personalities and, and what they've taken or intentionally discarded from the trainers who they've seen along the way. Um, I, I suppose, though, that if, you know, when I talk to juniors about consultations, the, the one clinician I come back to is Carl Rogers, who is a therapist. And he, he talks about this um, unconditional positive regard for patients. And, and it, as I understand his, the, his thesis in this area was that he said that most of the time we make judgments on people based on whether we think that they're valuable. In other words, our regard for them is conditional on what we think of them and their lives and what they do and contribute. And he, he said, but 
people in the world need need to be valued because they're human beings, not because of what they've achieved or anything like that, but just because they're people. Mm. And he says that you need to, as a therapist, as a doctor, whatever, need to value people under all circumstances. And he calls that unconditional positive regard, that you don't value someone or give them time or kindness based on what you think, whether you think they're a deserving case, so to speak. And for me, that speaks most of all to how I, if, if I could, if someone would say about me that that's the clinician he is, that that would be the best thing that they could say. And, and that's, that's what I try and teach my juniors in terms of clinical interactions. Yeah. So you, you encourage the, the, the person first approach. So seeing the person first before anything else. I think to find, you know, to understand them, to find out about them, to be interested and curious and to, you know, everyone's got some, something of value uh, to, to contribute and everyone's opinion. You know, people tend to come to an opinion that, that's logical to them. And, and you can only really work out the logic to them when you've understood who they are. Mm. and why they've arrived at the decision that they've arrived at. And only when you do that can you really engage in a discussion about, for example, changing someone's mind, if that's, if that's what you think is a relevant discussion to that, or to discuss treatment with them for a particular condition. You're, if it's you just having a tug of war, patient says no and you're saying yes, well, where's that going to get you? you? may even hand them a prescription in the end and they'll just put it in their pocket and it'll you know, go into the laundry with their jeans and it'll never see the light of day. And so I, so that's something that I do try and encourage. Um, and, and again, it's, it's partly, you know, that is what leads you to be an effective clinician. I think is, is, is to, is to take the patient with you. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's this sort of element of the conversation sort of drifting towards things like, you know, motivational interviewing, which, of course, is mm. something that's that's used. Um, well, probably not used enough, actually. I mean, there's people who naturally just seem to do it um, mm. and, and others get get the training. Um, so when, when you're encouraging the juniors to to look at this and sort of the Rogers approach, a human approach, are there specific things they go off and do to to learn about that or is it off their own back or how, how does it work yeah i i don't think there's specific things they do you know they can either you know take on board what i'm saying or not in the end um but no i don't think that there's anything that they specifically uh can do to sort of progress that and i don't necessarily check that that's what they've done either it's just you know, if they've seen something in the way that I conduct my clinical interviews that they value, then this, you know, this is part of how I do it. And that's, that's what I tell them, or these are the things that I've read about. I mean, I say read about, not read that much Carl Rogers, um, even despite talking like I'm an expert in it. But the, um, <laughs> but the you know, I, I think that medical training, to some extent, you know, is, is structured. And to some extent is done by experience and um and people as i say can take or leave it yeah yeah well you're i mean you, you know you know the title of this this podcast positive encouragers and that's you know mm. what, what you're doing there who mm. who were your encouragers who who positively influenced you in this way mm. um yeah i i I think there's been a few important sort of people in my professional career. I can think of uh, Simon Wesley, who's um, professor at, uh, at King's, and Rob Howard, who's at, now at UCL, um, UCH. Can't remember one or the other. Um, and both both of them have sort of been my have been sort of. I'm sure I'll think of others after we finish this and 
cringe. <laughs> I've not name checked them. Don't worry, it's not but like are... an Oscar ceremony. <laughs> <laughs> but those are two people who I, I think it's more in terms of the, the, the way that of some of the things that they've said, I can even now I say some phrases to to my patients that I remember them saying, and that was, you know, ages ago, decades ago. In, in some cases where uh, so I sort of I think you know a bit of a jackdaw you, you sort of pick up things along the way um, that, that that you think yeah that that kind of sounds right and uh, I can imagine myself saying that and then you just do you just sort of own it as your own yeah 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 and, and is there anyone who's influencing you now who who do you kind of look to and it doesn't, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't have to be in, in the profession. I love looking well outside the profession to, for inspiration. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I mean, I was just initially when you asked the question before you widened it out, I was thinking, well, there's a team now, people I work with. I've moved into neuropsychiatry uh, more over the last uh, six, 12 months. Um, and there's a team there now. And I've, I've really enjoyed being part of the team. And I sort of learned from all of them. But I'm always struck by the insights that authors have. I mean, we, we began this, I think maybe before you hit record, we, we began uh, talking about our bookshelves. <laughs> and, and I've always, you know, when you read good literature and you just sort of see the psychological insights that people, the authors have had into people's characters and motivations and everything. And I, I think you genuinely well I genuinely do learn from them as well and I, I just I read very late to the party but I read Wolf Hall and then Bring Up the Bodies by Hilary Mantel just uh, just in the last couple of weeks and I was really struck again by how I know, genius the, the sort of insights into personality and you now I think back to my most influential books like Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky and I, you know, the sort of human nature and my identification with those things. So I think that, I guess in the end, you want to try and learn from everyone along the way, try to, as though that answer is, which is what I like talking to people. You always, you know, come away with something. Yeah. Um, and it might not be, might not, I mean, I've talked to, I, my, my, I had a flat tyre recently I talked to the RAC man about what he was doing he he asked me if I was an idiot savant <laughs> I'd asked him so many times because <laughs> I couldn't I'm not very sort of mechanical <laughs> but he um anyway the point is that I, I just talk to people and you sort of take stuff away yeah so I've come a long way from the question that you asked but I guess that's the honest answer well, you widen it right out to the fact that we ultimately we can be inspired by anyone and if we're open to it mm. it can be a brief conversation in the supermarket the rac man a relative mm. a professor a book a podcast whatever yeah that's absolutely it isn't it and and you you know you sort of store it away and um you know i i i collect quotes i've i've just I don't know what I've started doing about 10 years ago. And every time I find a quote, not you know, come across a quote, let's say, um, the, I'll, I'll write it down and, and now I've got a long list. And one of the quotes that I kind of wish I'd, maybe I not wish I put in the book, but I think it would have been relevant to the book, but I didn't put it in it, um, is, was uh, I mean quotes are always difficult because you you know you always see the quote written slightly differently in different places and <laughs> maybe they did say something slightly similar at at another time um, and which is why it's written in a slightly different way so I, I've always sort of agonised about about that but I think it was um, attributed I mean I'm pretty sure it was Daniel Boston who is an American historian who said something along the lines of the uh, that that. that I wish I could find it now, but he said something alike that, that the lack of progress is not through ignorance, but the illusion of knowledge. You know, that's what holds us back. And I can't remember exactly the context, but it was something along those lines. And I think about 
that now that the worst thing you can do, whatever role you have, is to is to think that you just know it now. That, you know, you're senior, you're an expert, and you're the consultant, therefore you know it. You, that that sense of knowledge is is a dangerous thing. Yes, you need to practice the knowledge you've got and be confident, but always be open to other things, other ideas, what other people are telling you. And I think that's, you know, that is really important. And I think it's true of medicine, you know, coming back to where we were a while back, which is that, you know, we have this notion that things in medicine just need to make sense. This person has this symptom because of this thing we can point to that we say caused it. Mm. And if it doesn't make sense, we're uneasy slightly agitated but mistrustful and and i say you know that's not you know why, why should things make sense you know why maybe, maybe not everything does and and maybe we need to be comfortable maybe there'll be an answer sometime or maybe not so anyway i can't remember what triggered that slightly stream of consciousness answer yeah. <laughs> quotations quotations but quotations. actually as as you were talking, you know, the idea of the, the Zen idea of the beginner's mind sort of popped in there of, of just keeping that that openness and, and mm. the risks of, of considering yourself an expert, meaning that you, you might be closed off to other ideas. And what you're mm. saying is, is that you you're you keep that beginner's mind, you keep those those eyes and, and ears open. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's important as the consultant to you know, be confident in your own knowledge, you know, to, but, but I always, if, if, you know, if there's a clinical problem, you know, to discuss it with the team, and I'll ask my juniors what they think as well, they may have got a different thought, a different perspective, and why not? Mm. You know, don't, don't have to do everything everyone says, but you certainly, you need to think about the, about the problems that you've got, and I, I, I'm not. I do quite like the idea of this old beginner's mind. Not heard, not heard that phrase before. Ah, yeah, the beginner's mind. Oh, you'll enjoy reading about that. But it, but it also strikes me, you know, when you're talking about that and the role of the consultant, what you're describing there is the art of good leadership as well, or the art mm. of great leadership. Mm. Yeah, I've never really thought about it in those terms. You know, it'd be great to be thought of as a good leader, but um, but yeah, maybe. Maybe I, um, I don't know much about sort of the leadership literature, um, but yeah, I think that's you know that that's how I feel about it anyway. Yeah, yeah, it might be a post podcast chat about that then the sort of the mm. leadership and managing good teams, running good teams, all that side of thing, appreciative inquiry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's, it's absolutely relevant. It's any team, whether you're, you're running a sports team, a business team, a healthcare team. It's, it's a team that mm. you want to be asking the right questions to point yourself in the right direction, have shared values, be working towards something together, using everybody's strengths. Um, and that, yeah. that's what you're describing in your approach. Yeah, I think that sounds like a fair summary of it. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. Um, just, I mean, the last thing, I mean, there's lots of things I could ask, we could be here for hours, but the last thing I, I really wanted to, to ask you was well, slightly more personal is how, mm. how you look after yourself as a, mm. you know, with your work, it's, it's demanding, yeah. you know, there's probably long hours and, and you have to listen to and work with people in very difficult mm. situations. So how do you self-care? Uh, it's, it's a really interesting question because I've just come back from holiday just last night and as far as holidays go I'm really bad at them <laughs> and I, I had this flash of insight um, I mean this is quite a personal answer I don't mind giving it at all um, but I, I, when I'm alone with my own thoughts uh, they're normally crowded out by something that I'd rather not be thinking about something you know, an anxiety, something I might have done wrong. I, I, I always, when I go to sleep, I have an earbud with the with a podcast or something that I'm listening to, so that I don't have to think about my own thoughts because who knows where they'll go. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
And so on holiday, I am frenetically busy trying to do things because the way I relax is by doing something. And the way my wife relaxes is by what normal people do, which is, you know, relaxing, sitting on the sun lounge. <laughs> and so, so on holiday, there's this kind of fruitful tension of me um, booking stuff. Oh, we're going kayaking in an hour. And we're going to cycle. And then we're doing a day trip the next day. And, and that's how I relax. She wants to sit still in that, and, and she's in the majority. Um, but that's, in as much as I look after myself, it's it's by displacing one thing with another. Yeah. And I might, if you ever speak to someone about how to sit alone with your own thoughts, um, I'd be interested in that podcast. <laughs> Listen to it and take notes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, there was um, there was a, there's a very good book called Teachers to Sit Still. Um, and uh, it was written a few years ago um, by a a British author who writes mainly about Italy actually Um, Uh and um, he he described his own experience of of essentially having sort of prostate type problems and going through all Mm. the diagnoses all the aches and pains and and then Mm. eventually um, he sort of sums it up amusingly I mean it's quite a witty book in many ways is well I, I either I either learn to meditate or, or I go and have anal massage. I decided to go and meditate, that type of thing. <laughs> um, but, um, but you know, the, the world now is full of encouragement to be mindful and to, and to meditate. Mm. Um, and there's pluses yeah. and minuses of that. And I'm sure you come across that. People probably talk about that every day. Mm. Um, that's not something that appeals to you. I just, I, I'm quite restless. You know, I was, th- to, I was, Try to. I'm, I'm not back at work till next week, so I thought I'd watch a movie today. And and I'm only about an hour and a quarter into it, and I've probably done it in about seven or eight different sections of you know five or ten minutes. Now oh, I'll go and check my emails. I oh, know you know maybe I should. And then I went for a for a quick run, yeah. you know, five k just in the middle of it. It's I'd quite like to do that, you know, to meditate or something. Um, and maybe, maybe it is the sort of pace of life, and and I'm sure I'm getting worse as I get older. Yeah. Have you, have you ever that... thought about seeing a psychiatrist? <laughs> if you know any good ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's not a bad thought. But um, no, certainly it's. Um, I do think there's something about getting older, though, that you. You think there's just so much to do, so much to accomplish, so much you want to do yet yeah. that, it, that it's hard not to, um, well, I find it hard to sit still these days. Well, you're clearly driven, um, mm. but, but we do, yeah, we, we do need, you know, a little bit of recharge. I've just got this sort of image of your, you know, you on holiday with your wife, she's sort of chilled out reading a book in the sun and, and you sort of suddenly turn up with, with a paddle in each hand and a, and a life and a hell, right, we're going kayaking, come on. <laughs> I am literally, that's exactly how it looks. I'm sort of <laughs> standing by the deck chair, hopping from one point to the other. <laughs> come on, come on. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's paid for now, and we're off we go. Yeah. Begrudgingly, the book goes down, right? Come on, then. <laughs> yes. Oh, brilliant. It's it a bit what it's like. Yeah. But, yeah, I, um, no, I'm going to have to read to uh, teachers that sit still. Maybe I'll... I'll learn a lesson from that. Yeah, well, I've got a couple of other suggestions I'll, I'll mention when we when we finish. But, yeah. um, but listen, it's been it's been fantastic to to mm-hmm. chat and hear about you know what you get up to and, and thanks so much for being generous and sharing your thoughts and, and your time. Um, maybe you could just tell us where people can find you and your book, obviously. Yeah. So the, the book is called Head First, A Psychiatrist's Stories of Mind and Body. Um, and that they can find pretty well everywhere at the moment that sells books. Um, and if they want to, well, they know quite a bit about it on this conversation. There was a lovely review in The Guardian if they want to read that. Um, and, my, um, and, and I work in central London. I'm employed by um, the Wardsley. 
and that's where my NHS practice is. I mean, obviously, all this is a personal thing, as you probably worked out this discussion. But the um, and and there, uh, I've got a private practice as well. I've got a website, alistairsankhouse.com. I hope I've not gone too far in asking no, 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 no question, but that's uh, um, so um, yeah. So that's that's me. Fantastic. And you're on you're on Twitter because I think I'm on Twitter. It's sort of doctor underscore psychiatry. So one, it's one of those. So Dr. Dr. Underscore psychiatry. It's one of those little Twitter moments when it was, a, it was a few years ago and people were talking about Twitter and I was a little bit dismissive. And then I thought, come on, keep up, Sandhouse. You, you can't just dismiss things you don't know about. So I, I developed this Twitter uh, I just set up this Twitter account thinking I'll keep it anonymous. And so I call it Dr. Scott Psychiatry. And then it first thing it says is Alistair Santhouse when it comes out, so I didn't quite understand. Yeah, um, you've so got a name does... and the picture of you sort of is fairly revealing as well. <clears throat> yes, they, well, I, it, I, <laughs> I uh, for a few years, I was a bit sort of bewildered by Twitter and then I embraced it. And now I, I actually quite enjoy it. I mean, amongst other people, but certainly meeting you, it's just been a lovely thing. It's one of those Twitter things where you feel you you made someone who you met someone who you just click with. How would that ever have happened without Twitter? And yeah. I know that there are downsides to it, but there is lots of people who I've never met who I be over doing say I feel close to, but I I like them, feel an affinity to them, and it's that's been one of the real upsides. So yeah, so if you want to connect with me on Twitter, that's um, that's how to do it. Fantastic. No, that's great. And I'll, I'll be putting all of those links um, on the page anyway. So people will oh, brilliant. Thanks. click on that. So that's that's easy. But um, no, fantastic. Thanks again. Um, and well, it's been um, lovely to speak. I can't believe how quickly that hour and a bit skipped by. Well, this is it, you see. The art of thinking how will we ever get to an hour? Maybe I won't have enough to say. <laughs> and here we are. But it's been a real pleasure speaking to you. No, fantastic. That's great. So um, thanks for everyone to listening. Um, Alistair, don't go anywhere. Um, we can chat afterwards. So thanks again. Take care.